So why don't you turn to John 4? We're going to jump right into it. As you're turning to John 4, if you've got your smartphone, you can go to the One Chapel app and catch the notes. Uh, I want to just kind of refresh a little bit. We've been in a long series in the book of Luke. If you weren't here at Easter, we covered the last chapter of Luke back then because we were talking about Resurrection Sunday. And so now we've moved out of Luke and into a new series, and Pastor Ross is going to spend several weeks just taking us through different spiritual conversations in the Scripture. And I found one in John 4 that I really wanted us to study out. I came across this story, and I thought, I don't know, Lord, do you really want me to stay here? There's so many things that people already know. It's the woman at the well. But I think he showed me three pretty specific things that I don't normally see when I read the passage. And so I'm just going to read it aloud, the first 15 verses together, so you can follow along. should come up on the screen as well. We'll start in verse 1. Let's get right to it. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. I like the way the message says it. It says that the Pharisees had posted the score and Jesus was ahead. Like the Miami Heat over the San Antonio Spurs. Oh, that was brutal. That was brutal, wasn't it? You're like, you Pharisee. I do like LeBron James, just saying. He's a beast and a baby. If you look down here in verse 3, it says, So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. Everybody say had to. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by that well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Everyone say, will you give me a drink? Meanwhile, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him then, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. He's saying, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's being very practical with her responses, her questions. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Jesus, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw over and over and over again. I'm going to call this message, with all puns intended, a well-intended conversation. Drum roll, please. Before we get into it, I want to unpack some geographical and historic things that I found as I was studying so that we can see what, where, and when this is all taking place. This is a vivid conversation that John is transcribing for us to show us the interaction between Jesus and a woman in need 
of something more. I found it intriguing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record the story of the woman at the well. There isn't a second version or or a parallel to this passage. just makes it more intriguing for me. If you look up at this map here up on the screen, you'll see that you've got three major regions of New Testament Israel. In the south, we see Judea. In the middle, Samaria, and in the north, Galilee. And these are cities here, Jerusalem, where Jesus would have spent time ministering, and Sakar that we just read about, and then Nazareth in the north. And so we all said it aloud. We said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Geographically, it makes the most sense, right, for Jesus to travel straight, to only stop for potty breaks when he needs them, and to stop at every fast food joint along the service road and make a straight path because that's 70 miles from Judea to Galilee. At four miles an hour, it would take you 17 and a half hours of walking to get there. That's not stopping, no cooking food. So it makes sense to go straight. But as I studied it out historically, Jews did not like Samaritans. And every Jew at this time would choose to go around Samaria. It would add two days to their journey, but they would go around. So why is it that John is telling us that Jesus had to go through Samaria? It doesn't make sense. It's the type of language he uses. Some versions say that it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. The Samaritans were known to be religiously confused. They were culturally a bit mixed up. They had kind of bred together as they had been conquered, and they were a band of misfits. I think of Samaria a lot like I do kind of um, the typical Austinite, not somebody in this room, but the Austinite that is down in Zilker Park, down on their knees, paying homage to the sun god, right? We know these people. We are in a spiritually confused city, if you didn't know that. So Samaria is a lot like Austin. The Samaritans were the type of people that would stroll around on their hybrid donkeys to go with bum stickers that say, keep Samaria strange. (laughs) This is the kind of people that we're studying. So get this, Jesus, a Jew, in fact, the king of the Jews, goes through Samaria and not around it. He was with the disciples, mind you. They had gone to town to get food, all of which were Jews. I can imagine them following Jesus and, you know, where the right turn normally is. He keeps going straight and they're like, oh, great. We've got to go that way to the misfits. Here's the reason Jesus chose that. He went through Samaria to demonstrate that he came to save the sinner, not to win a popularity contest. That's our God. In Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees looked down their noses at Jesus because of yet another unpopular choice that he made. He was eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and they didn't like it at all. So if you look at Mark chapter 2, I'm just going to read a few verses here. In 15, it says, 
While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. In verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? I love, again, the message version says, what kind of example is this, acting cozy with the riffraff? And then Jesus overheard them. Notice, he wasn't even talking to Jesus. He was talking to the disciples. So Jesus is in conversation with the tax collectors. He overhears the Pharisees and their arrogance, and he turns to them and says, hey, those who are strong and well have no need of a physician, but those who are weak and sick, they do. I came not to call the righteous ones to repentance, but I came for who? The sinners. The Pharisees were always getting shut down by him, keeping track, counting all of the people he had been baptizing. And remember back in John 4, John says, actually, it wasn't even Jesus doing the baptizing. It was the disciples who were doing it. The Pharisees had no idea. Here, Jesus again is making the unpopular choice. Choosing to go through Samaria that day meant that the disciples would see it and that we would read about it and that one day the entire world would know that our God came to establish an unpopular kingdom that is interested in the riffraff, the misfits. I want you to get that in your head because what happens is a lot of times we have an incompetent view of ourselves in relationship to God. We think that we're not good enough, that our faults, our failures, they keep us from God. But in reality, he came for you. He came for that, not for the self-righteous ones, but for the ones who are in need. He traveled the unpopular narrow road. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus came to set up. Another interesting idea about Samaria that I want us to get was recorded by Paul in Acts in chapter 1. Just really simply here, it's, it's just an idea that shows how important Samaria was to our God. Paul is recounting the Great Commission, and he says in verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And then he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then it's at that moment he goes on into the sky. The very last thing he says to the disciples, the very last thing he says to us is do not forget Samaria. It's important to me. I went through the place that most people go around. So if we take ourselves out of the equation of trying to figure out our own salvation and how God interacts with us, I want to spin the coin just a little bit. And can I just warn you, it's going to be a little bit poignant. I'm going to ask a lot of questions about how you live your life. And I'm going to tell you a little bit how I live mine. But this is a message I think we need to get heading into Love Austin. If I ask you this question, what is your Samaria? Or if I say it like this, what are you currently going around in life that you should be going through? I want you to think about it. If I give you some personal examples, I call the first one the garage door effect. Anybody know what that is? 
The garage door effect is this. I pull into my neighborhood. I pull up my driveway. I go into my garage door. The garage door closes. I go into my house. Then I can't figure out why I don't know my neighbors. It's like a mousetrap. Right? It's like a giant fly trap. I don't even know I'm doing it. If I don't leave my garage door open and walk slowly down the sidewalk, I'll never get to know the people that live next to me. You'll never get to know the people that live next to you. I've already decided that I don't want to be that guy. Now, it makes it easier having a little 10-month-old chubby baby that I can walk around with because people are really interested in her. I've got to keep my garage door open and walk slowly down the sidewalk. I've got to go through some area in that way. The second one for me would be the homeless guy that hangs out down at 360 in Mopac. Listen, I've settled that it's not necessarily my job to give the guy money. But it is my job to show love. It is my job to make eye contact with him. So I'm telling you some of my weaknesses. I sit at that light and I move to the center lane. I look down on my phone like I'm doing something really interesting so I can avoid making eye contact with him. Why? I don't know. It's this confrontation thing, maybe. I don't know what to do. I know that giving him money maybe enables him. I struggle with all that. But you know what the Lord has told me? I'm walking through the supermarket. Hey, grab another case of water. Keep it in your car, and you can give him water every day. Go through Samaria. I'm going to cry today, so you better be ready. It just happens. I'm so weak. (laughs) The third one, and a lot more personal for me, is my relationship with my earthly father. If I'm honest, I don't really want to deal with him. Years of hurt and failure on both sides, miscommunication, If we're all honest, most of us aren't good with confrontation, and so I go around him. I go around Samaria. He doesn't necessarily come to me either, but I go around him. But you know what I've settled? Well, I haven't really settled settled it. But I I really don't want to... try to tell my kids that they need to forgive. (laughs) And then I have them ask me why they don't know Grandpa. So When I cry, I'm not looking for your pity. If you hang out with me for four or five days, you'll know that it's just routine. (laughs) But I'm just telling you a little bit about Samaria for me. What is it that I go around that I need to be going right through? Even if it's just baby steps, right? I can't fix that relationship with my dad overnight. 
But on Father's Day, on his birthday, just to listen to him tell me what the weather is in Boise, Idaho, I got to call him. I got to be in that relationship, even if it's just a little bit at a time. I'm kind of pointing at two issues here. Samaria oftentimes has to do with confrontation. And Samaria oftentimes has to do with commitment. Let me talk about a couple of the commitment ones. Maybe in your life, it's the way you're currently handling a relationship or putting effort in at work. You might be here today and you've just decided that you don't need to marry her. What if it doesn't work out? I'm just not ready for that kind of commitment, so you just go around Samaria. You're doing everything in the wrong order. And God won't honor it. For some, maybe you're having trouble holding down a steady job, but when reality hits, you don't really want to hold down a steady job. We don't want to work. We sleep in and show up late, and right away we're casting vision towards the next job, something easier, something new. Then we quit and start the cycle over. I don't know what your Samaria is. That's two things that just came to my heart today. But here's the filter I want you to run it through. From now on, every day, I want you to ask yourself, do I walk the path of least resistance or the path that leads to righteousness? What am I doing there? The path of least resistance or the path that leads to righteousness? I'd say this to those of you that might be struggling in the areas I just mentioned or similar ones. Stay with the job, man. Don't give up. The grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. Work hard and let God do the promoting. He's interested in that. Who knows? Might even turn into a career for you. Now listen, the 17-year-olds and maybe the 19-year-olds that are going on 12... I'm not talking about you marrying her. I'm talking about 25, going on 30, you've been together a year or more, and you're just afraid to make commitment. My word to you is stop being a noncommittal wimp. Get on the horse. And to myself, I say, Marty, you've got to leave your garage door open. Engage in conversation with my neighbors. Walk slowly down the sidewalk. Make eye contact with the homeless guy and make it mean something. Have that conversation with your dad. Don't avoid long overdue confrontation and miss out on even more time and even more relationship. Move towards a reconciliation even if it's just one step at a time. I hate to make this a segue to Love Austin because it's happening next week and I don't want you to see it as trite or self-serving that I would come with a message about going through Samaria and relate it to our community, but I can't help it. Austin is our Samaria. It's the place that we are going to and through that we live, where there's complications spiritually. It's really at the heart of Love Austin that we reach out. We've heard Pastor Ross say that we're not going to be able to change Austin in one day, right? That's not even the point. The goal is that we as a church body are aiming to walk the path 
that leads to righteousness, to get up early on a Sunday morning, not to come here to worship, but to go out there to worship. Do you see that as a big picture and how important that is? We've done Love Austin on Saturday before, but we've not yet committed a Sunday to it. And listen, our pastor's not here today, so I can say this. It's not an easy decision to make. There are so many details that are ironed out and worked out, and yet there's still going to be so many unknowns when we get there next week. Some of you will have a great experience. Others of you will feel like, frankly, you're wasting your time. Just telling you like it is. That's what I typically do. Last time I told you about my wife's booger stash. If I'm honest, and he would never say this, the reason so many churches would never do that on a Sunday morning is because we don't get an opportunity to take tithes and offerings to receive that, right? You don't get a chance to give. And you're like, well, wait, you know, I give online. Well, good, but there's a lot of people, it kind of happens for them right here. Pastor Ross, even in our meetings, has never said that. In fact, none of us have ever brought it up either because we know his response to us would be, I don't care about that. God will work it out. We've got stuff to pay for with Love Austin. But see, look, Love Austin is fifth Sundays, and we're going out and facilitating and implementing things. That's still not the vision for it, though. The vision for it is bigger and greater. It has to do with us individually knowing our neighbors, our coworkers, the people we go to school with, the people that we play with. And day in and day out, we see those needs. And Love Austin is just an overflow. It's like a party of what goes on throughout the year anyway in our neighborhoods. Does that make sense with what's happening here? We're facilitating opportunity this next week, but it's just the beginning. Everyone say it's just the beginning. I think we have to get that. I'm going to challenge you then. If we go through the summer months here, I don't, Mind if you take a Sunday off, a couple of Sundays off, but don't let it be next week. Next week is not the one to say, well, there's just too many, too many unknowns, too many variables. I, I don't think we can do this. If I'm looking at the time and the weather, it's going to be hot, and, and we'll, just, we'll just stay home for this one, or we'll plan a trip for this one. That, that's not at the priority for our church anyway. The vision is that us as one chapelonians-ish, that we would see this as a greater opportunity to worship than singing song here in this room. And so we've got to push into it and lean in on it. So carrying on, look back at this passage. I'm going to go to verse 6. We've actually not even gotten into the conversation that Jesus is having with this lady. But Jesus says something to her that I want us to see. Right in the beginning, in verse 6, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Get that in your mind. And at about noon, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? What was he doing here? You know, Jesus is like Superman, but better. Will you give me a drink? That's like... Superman pulling up, hitchhiking, and I, you know, I'm like driving up, hey, roll the window down, I see it's Superman, and he's like, can you give me a ride? I'm like, no, you give me a ride, bro. Let's do something else. You don't need my water. She obviously didn't see that. 
Jesus bluntly asks her a simple question. But I want you to notice what about that question is so important for us to see. It was simple and unpretentious. It put Jesus in a vulnerable place. Another layer that this Samaritan woman wasn't aware of is that Jesus was a rabbi. And by rabbinical law, he would have been disallowed to ever talk to a woman in public. She says, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, we don't talk. She didn't even put the other two things together. There would have been no exceptions to that for Jesus. But what did he do? Didn't care. He chose the unpopular road. I like to say that Jesus was a master of conversational strategy. And we can learn from it. He was aiming to reach this woman, not to drink her water. He didn't come with answers or a poster board that displayed his religious agenda. He said a simple question and gained access to her world. If I were to guess, the majority of you in this room today that have authentic relationships with your neighbors, I envy that, by the way. We've been in our house a year and a half, and we're working on it. I'm going there, no matter what. Even if they got to move out and someone nice has to move in. (laughs) But what I'm saying here is that those of you that have authentic relationships with your neighbors, I'll bet you it started over something that was pretty simple. It didn't start because you went over there and tried to evangelize them. Maybe you needed something, actually. You needed butter to finish a recipe that you were working on, right? Or you showed interest in one of their kids. What's her name? How old is she? You found yourself in their world because you didn't come with an agenda. This is what Jesus is doing here. We have to be strategic. Did you know that we can't reach people on accident? We have to be strategic. Think about it. For me, the guy that lives catty corner to me, so far, I've only gotten to the 45-foot wave. Relationship's not going to develop like that. I've recently come to find out that he has a brown lab that Isla is infatuated with. She would marry that dog if I would let her. She's never getting married. But I got to go over there. What's his name? How long have you had him? Unpretentious questions. Not, does your dog know Jesus? Are you guys getting where I'm headed to go through Samaria to understand that? Let's talk about some very specific things that might play out in your neighborhoods. Maybe you know somebody that has a tremendous leak in their roof and you've been into their house and it smells of mold and you know that it's going down that way or maybe they have an air conditioner that you know needs repaired or it just got shut off on them yesterday. And you know this because you left your garage door open and walked slowly down the sidewalk. Let's get a group of people together and go over and help that guy. Fix that roof. Or how about the widow down on the corner that has an unreliable vehicle? Let's get some guys together. 
Go put that car back in working order so she can get out and about. Let's fill her fridge with groceries. Let's mow her yard. Let's do some spring cleaning for her. We can't do that if we don't know what's going on, if we don't go through Samaria. That's how Love Austin's going to grow. Not on fifth Sundays, but because we are Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our communities. So I know that it makes sense by way of vision, but I want to give you three things before we go to help us practically get to the point that we can let the vision take root. Three very simple things. You should be able to remember, remember them, but I'd ask you to write them down. Number one is we have to slow down. We have to make sacrifices and be deliberate. I'm certain that at the pace most of us run, we can't even make enough time for what we've got going on, yet alone to add to it. Here's what I know about myself. If I change my pace without being deliberate, if I just take time off, I end up on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram for a couple of hours, and then I wonder where all my time went. That's why I wrote, be deliberate. Otherwise, it's not going to turn into much. It's in this pace of slowing down that we remember how important taking a Sabbath is. Taking a day off every week. Why? So that the reset button can go. You know, society, the one we live in, it's spinning at this incredible rate, like a tornado. And we have to step into it to go to the business world, to go to school, to take our kids to their own school. But if we don't hit the reset button, then we just spin at the rate our society goes, and we're not choosing the unpopular road anymore. We're just passing on by people, moving to the center lane instead of engaging with the homeless guy. My mom used to say, it's amazing what you can see if you just open your eyes. Show you what you can see. Number two, look up. Be perceptive and stay interested. We've got to look up. What's this song we sang? Heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. If we don't slow down and look up, we only see our world. The one that revolves around us. That's not the way Jesus lived. Don't settle for one more hey neighbor way from 45 feet away. Number three, we have to be strategic. Remain intuitive and seek inspiration. I know that many of us don't have the means to meet the need of the widow down on the corner. So we have to be intuitive and seek inspiration and find new ideas, find ways to make it happen. Uh, I got a soapbox here and I'll step on it really quick and then I'll get off. Some of us, we were good about raising money for a mission trip we want to take to Uganda, but raising money for the widow down the street has never crossed our mind. Right? Why not? You don't have the means. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to fill it. And if you can't fill it, okay, if you honestly can't fill it, then see her as somebody who needs a friend and go 
be there for her. You say, yeah, I've done that, and that person tried to suck me dry. In fact, I invited them over to my house, and their kids stole all my kids' toys. It happens, I'm just telling you. Be strategic. Who knows, the strategic method for you might actually start with your neighbor helping you with something that you need. Maybe you've got overgrown trees between your property line and theirs, or I don't know. I mean, there's a number of things that could happen that we just don't reach out for whatever reason. Maybe it's because we don't have enough time, or maybe it's because we're just too arrogant to ask somebody for help. We're supposed to be the ones that have the light for them. That's not what it's about at first. Jesus said, will you give me a drink? Go ask for a drink. Did you notice in the story, he never gets the drink. He doesn't care. He saves this woman's life. With that question, the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, wait, stay where you are, and eventually you will make disciples. He said what? Go and make disciples. That's so important for us to get because if we don't experience the felt need of reaching out to the people around us, then all that stuff slowing down and looking up and being strategic, it's just ideas, and it won't play out for us. You'll settle for four fifth Sundays a year to present outreach to the community and walk around picking up cigarette butts around Pound Lake. And you'll think, well, that's, this is all my church does. For outreach, this is what I'm taking part in today. That's not the point, picking up cigarette butts. Right? I'm pushing. I know I am, and I'm sorry, but I don't get to do this very often, so I'm just going to keep pushing. (laughs) Go and make disciples. Do not stand where you are. We should live our lives to lavish life on other people. Not for ourselves, not for my gain, not so that I can have every toy that makes the weekends fun. I'll be honest, I struggle with that. I'm on my mountain bike a couple of times a week, and one day, if you don't see me here, it's because I probably took a pretty good spill on it. But it's about pace, right? It's about timing. Less time on Facebook and Twitter for you, Marty. More time across the street with Michael and Jill and their little boy, Joey. This is what Jesus came to offer that lady. I'm going to close with this, and the band can come on up. I want us to look at the last verse here. It's John 4, 28. It's actually not the last verse of the chapter, but it's the last verse I'm going to share. You know, there's a whole section in this conversation. Maybe Pastor Ross will let me come back and teach it, or maybe he'll teach it next week. I'm not sure where he's going to go with it. But there's a whole other section that we didn't even read about the Father seeking those that worship in spirit and in truth. It's where most people spend their time when they study this passage out, that she didn't understand what he was offering, this living water. And she's like, well, living water, where's that? I want some. And she couldn't figure it out. And she says, well, hey, some worship over here on this mountain. And you say, I'm supposed to go worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus looks at her and he says, listen to me. 
that mountaintop where you used to worship and Jerusalem where I worship, none of that's going to matter here in a few days because worship is going to go into you. The wellspring that leads to eternal life. And I want you to read John 4 a couple of times this week and you'll see what happens there. But look at John 4, 28. Then, leaving her water jar behind, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This guy read my mail. Could this be the Messiah? She said, then, leaving her water jar behind, If you get into this story, this woman had five husbands, and now she was with a man who wasn't even her husband. And Jesus called her out on it. And the reason that she was going to that well every day was two and a half miles outside of Sakar. It was the well that women went to early in the morning, but not her. Where does it say she went? She went in the middle of the day. Why? To avoid everybody else. She's hiding. She's lost in her past. Get this. Samaria represents our world. And this Samaritan woman represents everybody in it that doesn't know Jesus. But when she encountered the living water... The kind of water that comes out over and over. You know, there's a, a spring down in Wimberley, Texas that's really well known. Do you know what it's called? It's called Jacob's Well. Gallon after gallon after gallon come out of the water, out of the ground. It's a modern miracle. It's an ecological miracle the way that it happens. This is what Jesus likens the living water that you'll never thirst again to. And she found it. And then what was her response? The thing that she kept coming back to that well for over and over and over again didn't matter anymore. She left her jar behind. The only way we reach Austin, the only way Love Austin works is if we leave the jar behind. The things that you think are the most important to you, that you need, that you want, that you desire. When you encounter the living God, what happens? That changes. Maybe it doesn't change overnight. Maybe you're in the process of it changing. But if we're going to follow the unpopular road, if we're going to follow the king of the Jews that didn't go around like the rest of his people, we've got to start to live differently, right? So I want you to close your eyes. We're going to close with you just soul searching some of these ideas. Ask the Lord. You ask him. Don't listen to the sound of my voice. You ask him how you can slow down. Ask him to give you creative ways to slow down sacrificially you might have to let some things go that you're interested in less screen time Marty number two we gotta look up we gotta look up we gotta look up it's amazing what you don't see you got your eyes closed and we've gotta be strategic we gotta ask God for creative intuitive ideas of how to reach the people around us I want you to be a part of Love Austin next week I'm going to handle this 
this way this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if the living water that I'm talking about, you've never experienced Jesus in that way and he's not in your heart, or if today you need to make that recommitment because that well has gone dry based on just decisions you've made or maybe your own ignorance about communicating with God daily and you just feel dry. The way I want to handle it today is at the end of the service, the prayer team is going to come forward and, and not on a prayer that I lead you in. I want you to go to them and I want you to introduce yourself and tell them that you need to receive Christ or that you need to recommit yourself to him. But who I want to pray over this morning is everybody in the room that would say you've been going around Samaria in some area of your life and you need to go through it. And just all you're going to do this morning is you're going to make a commitment to say that you're going to change the pace. You're going to change the course and choose to go through Samaria and you're asking for strength and for someone to agree with you that that's the right decision to make. And so if you need to go through Samaria and something in your life, I want you to raise your hand. You've identified it. I see it. Hands everywhere. You've identified it. You need to go through Samaria where you've been going around. I see all those hands. You can put them down. And I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to ask Pastor Brent to come up and close this out. So, Father, we just ask that you'd help us understand what it was like to make the unpopular decision to go through Samaria. And then you would give us intuitive ideas of how to start conversations to, to, teach, to strategically ask in our own way the unpretentious question, will you give me a drink or something of that sort? And Lord, help us to see that our position in this world is not to lavish life on ourselves, but you put us here to go and make disciples and to lavish life on those we encounter. In Jesus' name.